Well, find uh, Genesis 46. For those new with us tonight, we've been walking chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis. And it's quickly drawn to a close, is it not? Chapter 46. Chapter 46. Okay, well, good. We might. Just keep going, huh? Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel, that is Jacob, of course, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. And of course we have all the names of the sons and their descendants. I won't read all the names at this point, but skip all the way down to verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. And of course, I'll comment on those two verses later. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of uh, Goshen, rather, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce writes, 
He says, I do not know of a large number of places in the Bible where God suddenly called out to a servant by his name, but there are indeed a few of them. For example, there was Abraham. When God said to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, and go to a place that I will show you and offer him there as a sacrifice to me. And of course, we know that Abraham responded with obedience. Boyce goes on to write about Samuel and how God called to Samuel as a little boy. And when Samuel finally realized it was God speaking to him, Samuel said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then, of course, in the New Testament, there's the case of Saul on the road to Damascus. And God said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then, of course, there's the occasion here. When in verse 2, God says, Jacob, Jacob. Now, as Boyce writes, he says, In each of the instances, there was a crisis of some sort going on in the person's life. And through that crisis, God intervened and ended up doing great things. For example, Abraham was spared having to sacrifice Isaac. And God made a covenant with him and promised to make a great nation from him and his descendants. He goes on to say Samuel was called to be Israel's first prophet who would end up anointing King David as king over Judah and then Israel. And then Saul would become the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary and theologian the church has ever known. And so that's how Dr. Boyce introduces this chapter. And then Dr. Kent Hughes, who I've recommended to you, his work on Genesis, he introduces the chapter a bit differently, but equally uh, powerfully. He speaks about how God is getting Jacob who is known as Israel, down into Egypt, where things will eventually turn out badly for Israel for 400 years. But then what will God do? God will deliver Israel into Exodus and bring them through the wilderness and into their own land. Dr. Hughes connects what God is doing here with what God had told Abraham years and years earlier that his descendants would become a great nation in a foreign land where they would be persecuted. Now, folks, I want you to think about what God is doing here, how God is setting everything up here. Just imagine how God's working. God is already getting all of the pieces in place for the exodus long before Moses and his contemporaries are even born. Folks, when you read stories like this and see what God is doing, how in the world can you doubt or question the sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of God is simply amazing. And when you see how God is attending to every single little detail. God has to get Israel down into Egypt where they will become too numerous to count. And so he has Joseph 
being sold into slavery, then being put into prison, then being elevated to prime minister in the land. And then what's God do? God brings about the famine, which gets Joseph's brothers down in Egypt. And what are they doing? They bow before Joseph just as Joseph had seen them doing in his dreams years earlier. And then God ultimately gets all of Israel into Egypt. And so when you see all of the people that God is getting in place and you see all of the circumstances God is setting up, it's absolutely amazing to think of. Folks, these are people's lives. These are nations. These are kingdoms at the time. These are forces of nature, a famine, and the brothers' jealousy, and prison, and dreams, and on and on we could go, how God is doing all of this. It's amazing to read about. Why in the world would we ever doubt God's power? As Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 3 verse 20, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything that we could ask or think. That's the kind of God we serve. Amen? Amen. Now, in addition to all of that, God had told Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. That goes all the way back to Exodus 20. Now, we know that that promise will be ultimately fulfilled through the Messiah when Jesus comes to offer salvation. And then, of course, Jesus will offer bread to the people that is a symbol of him being spiritual bread. But already here in Genesis, we see a little microcosm of that in the physical realm. Joseph is a descendant of Abraham and the nations are coming to him. He's a type of Christ. They're coming to him for bread. Now, as I told you the last time we looked at Genesis, before we get into some of the individual points tonight, the last time we looked at Genesis, we, we see here that God is working on a number of, of different levels. And I want to explain that again. First of all, I want you to remember when God later leads the children of Israel into the promised land, he instructs them that they are to destroy all of the inhabitants of Canaan. God is doing things though so that nobody will be able to say God is unfair. God's not unfair. God knows whether they will repent or not, but, but he's taken away any accusations that men would ever be inclined to launch at him. God will be fully just and righteous in telling the Israelites to annihilate everyone in Canaan. But God is getting Israel down in Egypt for 400 plus years to do what? As he said back in Genesis 15, to give the Amorite time to repent. So again, after that 400 years, the Amorite has not repented. 
And so God is fully just when he will tell his people as they go into Canaan to destroy the Canaanites. Well, on another level, God will also have a purpose in Joseph's family being enslaved in Egypt because God will build character and fortitude in them and God will be bonding them together closer as a family of slaves. He's going to be binding them together as a family unit, as a nation, and he's going to be building endurance and strength into them. On still another level, they will see beyond a doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, God's deliverance of them. There is no way they will be able to witness all of the plagues in Egypt and then the Exodus itself and not be able to see God's hand in their history. They will be able to look back over their history and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is with them and God is providing for them and God is directing their steps. And so we're seeing all of these storylines being developed in these chapters in the book of Genesis. I told you a couple of weeks ago, I don't want you to think of God as reacting. God is not reacting to human history. Instead, God is proactive. God is putting all of the right people in all of the right places at all of the right times to do exactly what he's going to lead them to do. And so it's going to be God's plan carried out in human history. History, afterward, uh, after all, is what? It's his story. Well, let's, let's see tonight how, this, how the saga continues and how God gives beautiful assurances to Jacob before Jacob even gets to Egypt. If you're taking notes, first thing I want you to see tonight is excitement and worship and fear. Excitement and worship and fear. Look again at verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, no doubt at this point, Jacob is thrilled. Why? Why is he so excited? Why is he so thrilled at this point? He's just learned that his beloved son, Joseph, is alive. Joseph was who? The first son of his beloved wife, Rachel. And he's now learned that he's alive, he's well, he's in charge of all Egypt right underneath Pharaoh himself. He's essentially the prime minister of Egypt. Now how long has it been now since he last saw Joseph? 
been 22 years now. 22 years since he last saw Joseph. Now folks, think about it. For this 22 years, he's thought that Joseph was dead. He's convinced when, when his other sons brought back that coat of many colors dipped in the goat's blood, he was convinced it was Joseph's blood. And what was his conclusion? Joseph has been torn to shreds by some wild animal. And all of these years, Jacob has been mourning the loss of Joseph. And you also think of how hard-hearted his other sons were, that they knew the truth. They knew the truth that Joseph had not been killed by the wild animals. And yet they never told their dad. That's cold, isn't it? And so now he's found out Joseph is alive and he's going down to Egypt to, to finally see him. I mean, parents, just think how thrilled you would be. Think of how excited he would be as he's packing everything up and, and getting ready to go. He can't wait to see Joseph. Joseph had been his favorite. He petted him and made that special coat for him and showed favoritism to him. And I told you before, parents, we need to be careful. We don't single out a particular child that we have and show favoritism to that one child above the others because we'll set up a sibling rivalry and jealousy that we need not be setting up. That's what Jacob's done. Well, we're told in verse 1 that he gets to Beersheba. This was a place that was very special in the history of the patriarchs because there, you'll recall, was where Abraham had made a covenant with Abimelech. Abraham had planted a tree there to symbolize that. And we're told that Abraham had called on the name of the Lord there at Beersheba. And it was while Abraham was there that God had called on him to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. And it was also there that Isaac had had that experience with God and had built an altar and three times God had assured him that he was there with him. So Beersheba factors in prominently in the lives of the patriarchs. It's a special place. Well, we're also told here that Jacob offered sacrifices and so, that, and so we know that this was a place of worship for Jacob. The Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon, suggested that Jacob offered sacrifices for three reasons. First of all, to purge his household of any sin that might remain among them. Secondly, to give thanks. I mean, when you think of everything he's just learned, that Joseph is alive and he's going down to meet Joseph. He's, he's, he's stopping off at Beersheba 
and offering sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. And third, as Spurgeon said, he's offering sacrifices simply to seek the mind of the Lord in this move. Now, God next reminded Jacob that he was Abraham's God and Isaac's God. The same God that had appeared to Abraham and made great promises to Abraham is the God who is speaking to Jacob now. And his word to Jacob was what? Fear not. Jacob, don't be afraid. I'm the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Again, Spurgeon suggested some reasons that Jacob might have been afraid. First of all, he says, remember, Jacob is an old man by now. He's, he's 130 years old. Spurgeon said, you know, young men like adventures. They like change. They like moving to new places. But when you're older, you don't like that, do you? <laughs> the thought of leaving home at 130 years of age and going down to another country for an old man that might have been a bit fearful. And so Jacob needed to hear words from God. Don't be afraid. Secondly, don't fear. Uh, he needed to hear that because of the paganism that was in Egypt. Folks, Egypt was the most highly developed nation of this time, but while it was highly developed, it was also greatly pagan. They had a God for everything. And so what do you think Jacob might have been afraid of once he gets down to Egypt with all of his family? They might follow the gods of the Egyptians, the false gods of the Egyptians, all those idols. And they might compromise who they are. And so Jacob might be fearful for his family. What's going to become of my family once I get down into Egypt? Are they going to remain as the distinctive people of God? Or is their faith going to be compromised? Egypt is a good example of the idolatry that the Apostle Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 1. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1, beginning in verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's what the Egyptians had done. And, and if you'll do some research on the Egyptian gods and think of some of the statues and so forth that they've made, they literally made gods out of different creatures in the form of 
creatures. And they'd begun to bow down and worship those. And so again, they were idolaters. And so Jacob is probably afraid of the effect that living in Egypt might have on his family. Thirdly, Spurgeon pointed out that Jacob might have been afraid because he knew what Egypt had done to his fathers. Abraham was a giant in the faith. And yet when Abraham went down to Egypt earlier, what happened to Abraham? He lied about his wife being his sister. So he might have been thinking, you know, if somebody like Abraham, a giant of the faith that we look back to, if he himself was compromised in Egypt, will I compromise? And lastly, Spurgeon said he, he might have feared for his future because he would have known God's word to Abraham that your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years and in Egypt, they're going to become slaves. So he might have been thinking, knowing what's going to happen to his descendants and the tough times that they're going to fall upon ultimately. So all of these things might have been why Jacob needed some assurances in his heart from God. And that's what I want you to look at secondly if you're taking notes. Assurances in response to any uneasiness that Jacob might have had in his mind and heart. Notice what God tells him in order to reassure him. He says, I'm God, the God of your father. In other words, just like I mentioned a moment ago, God is telling him, I'm the covenant-keeping God and just as I made my covenant, with your ancestor Abraham, just as I was with Abraham, I've made my covenant with you and I will be with you. Jacob would have known how God called Abraham from a far land and how God had promised on oath to give the new land to Abraham's descendants. And God had done the impossible with Abraham and Sarah in the birth of Isaac. I mean, nobody has a son at their age. And yet God promised them that they would have a son in their old age. And God went on to accomplish exactly what God promised. And so just as God was with Abraham, God is reminding Jacob he'll be with him too. And then God gives him the assurance next that he'll make a great nation of him. Now again, this promise had been given to Abraham and was passed to Abraham's descendants. And so now God's promise to Abraham is being given to Jacob. Whatever else they face down in Egypt, what does Jacob know? Jacob knows that God is going to make a great nation of him. And notice it's not what we would have expected back when, when God gave the promise to Abraham. But God tells Jacob here that he will make of him a great nation while in Egypt. 
In other words, God's promise will come to pass not just simply later on in the promised land, but God's promise of making a great nation out of Jacob and his descendants will take place while they are sojourning down in a foreign land, down in Egypt. And so great and mighty things are going to come out of this move down to Egypt. Now, third word of assurance, God says to Jacob, I will go down to Egypt to be with you. Folks, when God speaks to his servants, he often assures them of his presence with them. You read in the scripture when God commands his people to do certain things, what does God oftentimes say along with the command whenever he calls somebody to do something? He says, do not be afraid because I will be with you. Folks, whatever God calls us to do, if God is with us, guess what? We have what we need to get the job done. Amen? <clears throat> it's no accident that later on in the Great Commission, when Jesus tells the church to go into all the world, what's he say? <clears throat> and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. God's presence. God had showed up in Jacob's life earlier with that dream when he saw that ladder connecting heaven and earth and angels going up and down on it. And then God had been with Jacob when he went to Laban's household in Mesopotamia. God was with him all those years. And now God's saying, I'll be with you down in Egypt. So whether in Canaan, whether out east in Mesopotamia in Laban's household, or whether down south in Egypt, Jacob, wherever you've been, I've been with you. And just as I've been with you in the past, guess what? I'm going to be with you in the future when you go to Egypt. Folks, God knows no territorial boundaries. What do the ancient peoples think of their gods? The, the pagan peoples in the nations. What did they think about their gods? They were just limited in one space, in one small area. Exactly. Yeah. They were limited to that one area. Say what? They had to pick them up and carry them. <laughs> they had to pick them up and carry them? <laughs> but, but they thought their god resided in their country. Uh, you know, Jonah even thought he could run away from the presence of God, right? What he learned, God's everywhere. God's not, the true and the living God is not a territorial God. He's the Lord of the heavens and the earth. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if Jacob's in Canaan, in Mesopotamia, or in Egypt. It doesn't matter where you are. God's with you. And God will never lead you somewhere where God will not be with you. Just like he'll never call you to do something, but what he will also with the calling give you what you need to get it done. Then God promises to bring Jacob back again. This, of course, would be, would be a promise that Jacob's descendants would realize. 
Jacob is learning here that Egypt will not be their permanent abode. Yes, they'll be, they'll be enslaved there. They'll spend centuries there. But God's got bigger plans for his children. Finally, God assures Jacob that he'll see Joseph again, whom he wanted to see before his death, and that it would be Joseph that would do what? That would close his eyes in death. When Jacob dies, Joseph will be the one to close your eyes. Now, folks, I want you to notice from verses 5 to 7, Jacob's total obedience being pointed out here. Because what's Jacob do? Jacob takes everybody and everything that he has with him down to Egypt. It's total obedience. He doesn't leave anybody or anything behind. Now, some concluding thoughts tonight. When you look at verse 8 and following, what we have here, we have the names listed of those who went with Joseph. In the Bible, we commonly have the genealogical list. And what's the importance of those genealogical lists in the Bible? Amen. Yes. Everybody in his covenant family. Everybody in his covenant family is listed. Also, as you read these genealogies, as we've pointed out in previous weeks, there's some surprising names that show up too, right? Names that you and I would never expect, but there they are. But again, God, God's including them all. God's showing them all. And what's he showing by that? He's getting all of Israel down to Egypt. Just like he's going to bring all Israel out of Egypt one day too. He's not going to leave anybody behind. Now, I don't intend to get in the weeds much here in verses 26 and 27 but, but let, let me give perhaps the best explanation of the various numbers. Because in verse 26, when we're told about all of Jacob's sons and who all went down, what are we told in verse 26? 66 persons in all. Then in verse 27, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt or what? 70. Well, when you look at verse 15, the number counted so far there is verse it is 33. Then you look down at verse 18 and what do you see? 16. Then you look at verse 22 and you see what? 14, then you look at verse 25, and what's the number you see? Seven. What does that total? Seventy. Seventy. 
exactly what you read in verse 27. Now, verse 26 mentions what? 66. Subtract who? You remember Ur and Onan? Remember his sons that God killed because they were wicked men? Mm -hmm. You subtract them out. They died in Canaan. Uh, verse 12. And then Manasseh and Ephraim who were born in Egypt. And what do you have when you consider those four? You have 70. Now, an added layer of confusion is when you look at Stephen's speech in Acts 7, verse 14. It's 75. What was the Bible? What was the Bible of the apostles and the early church? Does anybody know? What version? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what, what was the version of the Bible that the Hebrew scriptures what, now wasn't the Hebrew scriptures because they were losing touch with their native tongue what was, the, what, was the, what was the Bible of the early church and the apostles in fact when you consistently see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, they are quoting from what? Septuagint. Septuagint. Thank you. Which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. So Stephen is quoting from the Septuagint. The Septuagint adds at Genesis 46 verse 20... Two sons of Manasseh, two sons of Ephraim, and one grandson of Ephraim. And when you add those in, what do we have? Seventy-five. And that's the number Stephen gives since he's quoting from the Septuagint. Well... If you do much studying on verse 26 and 27, some commentators look at the number 70 typologically. Some of them say it, it just speaks of totality. And so you'll find different thoughts on these two, two verses. Now, the point, though, that we are intended to see is that, just like I said before, all of Israel ends up down in Egypt. And so when God delivers them into Exodus, there are no relatives in Canaan that they go back to. And so they're to destroy everybody in Canaan. None of Israel has been left in Canaan. All Israel went down to Egypt and God delivers all Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. That's what we're intended to see here, chiefly. 
Nobody's left behind. God carries them all down there and then brings them all out. Well, we see in verse 28 that Judah is now a trusted son. He stands apart from his siblings in that regard. And this is also going to be reflected in chapter 49 when Jacob pronounces blessings on his sons. Judah will end up with a very favorable blessing in chapter 49. Now, as we close out chapter 46, Joseph has arranged for all of for, for, for his father and all of his brothers and their families to live in Goshen, which was the best part of Egypt in terms of it being a lush and fertile land. Goshen would fit the family well, fit the people of Israel well, since they were what? They're shepherds. And so remember what Pharaoh had said to Joseph when he found out Joseph's family is going to be coming into Egypt? Joseph, you pick the best part of the land. Whatever you want to give to your family, you give your family. You give them the best part of Egypt to settle in. So judging by what Israel does for a living, Goshen is indeed the best part of the land. Now, in verses 29 and 30, we have a very emotional reunion of Jacob and Joseph. You can only imagine what that would have been like when they finally see each other and they fall on one another's necks crying. I mean, again, folks, it's been 22 years. And Joseph has thought that, I mean, Jacob's thought that Joseph was dead. So just imagine, imagine the emotion that would have been here. Also, let me say something else about Goshen. Goshen would have been on the edges of Egyptian society. And so Israel was getting the best of the land to shepherd their flocks, plus they would be able to maintain a certain degree of separation from Egyptian society. Now, that's important to see here. They would have protection living in Egypt. Living under the Egyptian rule, they would have protection. They would have provision because of what Joseph's done, ensuring there's food in the land. And they would have a degree of separation being allowed to live in Egypt but away from the Egyptians, ensuring that they can maintain some of their identity. One writer likens what's going on here in some sense to Noah and the ark. As Noah and his family were safe in the ark, all of Israel is now safe in Egypt. They will end up riding out a storm in Egypt, storm of a different kind, and then God will deliver them and begin afresh and anew with them just like he had done earlier with Noah and his family. 
Now, folks, later on, I want us to concentrate a little bit more on what Paul says in Romans 8, 28 and tied in with the Joseph narrative that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and those who are the called according to his purpose. Everything that's happened in Joseph's life, some bad things, some sinful things, some hurtful things, some painful things. God has used all of it. God's not the author of sin, but he's allowed it. And he uses it. He uses it for Joseph's good and for his own glory. And what's the assurance that Paul gives? That just as we see God doing that on the pages of Scripture through the saints of old, he does it in your life too. For those who are his children, he causes all things to work together for good. As we've talked about in here before, do you necessarily like everything about your life? No. Do you like everything you've been through? Do you like every trial you've had to encounter? No. None of us like everything that we've ever been through in our lives. And I'm sure if there's some things you could change in your life, man, you'd want to change it, right? I mean, as far as so you wouldn't have to go through it again. But in all honesty, I bet you would also testify that as you look back on your life, you see how God has used it all. And he's, he's used it for your good and for his glory. And so when you look at it that way, is there really anything in your life that you would change? Probably not. And that's what we see in Joseph and in his whole family, Jacob and all the sons of Jacob, how God has worked for good. Those brothers had no idea what they were doing when in their jealousy and their hatred and their resentment of their brother. They sold him to those Midianites who were going down to Egypt. They had no idea of how God was using that for ultimate good. As I started out tonight, it's amazing when you think about the sovereignty of God and how he works in our lives. Now, folks, that's a promise for those who are his children. Romans 8, 28, it's a promise because what's it say? God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. That's a promise for God's children. That purpose meaning our Christ-likeness. Absolutely. Amen. And he goes on in verse 29 and following 
to describe what's the ultimate good that God's trying to do in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. That is the ultimate good that God's, that God's doing. But again, that's a promise for God's children. For those who don't know God through faith in Jesus Christ, that promise is not for them. Tonight, if you're outside of Christ, that promise is not for you. But if you're in Christ, that promise is for you. All things work together for good. Amen? Let's get our prayer sheet out. Any comments before we go on? No, the end of the end of chapter five, the uh, the other sons come back and say Joseph is alive, and he basically says, "Get out of here, y'all are pulling my chain," and they and they offer some kind of proof. And he's blown away. He's like, wow, he really is alive. But so that, that revelation comes at the end of chapter 45. So yeah. the vision is God's affirming to, uh, to Jacob that uh, Joseph is alive. He's confirming that he'll be with his son. He's con- yeah, he's confirming he'll go down to Egypt. God will be with him. God will make a great nation out of him. He'll see his son who will close his eyes in death. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. You're going to spend the rest of your life with your son. Yeah, exactly. It's important we see so clearly too. God's timing is so different from ours. Yes. Yes. Boy, that is so true. We want everything to happen by tomorrow. By yeah, yesterday, and 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 you think I mean Joseph, you know, from a seventeen-year-old young man to age thirty, where's he been? Prison. Don't you think he must have thought everybody's forgotten about me? God's forgotten about me. My family's forgotten about me. Everybody's forgotten about me. I mean, think about it. That's a long time, from 17 to age 30. And yet God had not forgotten about him at all. So it certainly says, to uh, when we understand the timeline in Scripture and the years and sometimes decades that pass, it's a testimony to us to, to not be impatient. God's not in a hurry. Sure. Well, remember when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, well, he had interpreted the dream of the the cupbearer and the baker, 
And then when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh looked at all his other wise men and said, can we find anybody else that God has given such wisdom to? So he looks at Joseph and says, congratulations, you're in charge to do all this. So God had given him that wisdom. Right. I'm sure God had been developing that in him all that time. And he never, yeah. you never see in his life anything but humility. Oh, I know. He yes. never gives himself credit. It's always God's glory. Yep. Yep. Which is what God desires in all of us. Absolutely. Well, even at 17, his father trusted him to go out to look for to, his brothers. To look over his brothers and see what they were doing. But all, but all along, I mean, as you're pointing out, his father, even though his father set up a lot of that jealousy, his, his dad put a lot of trust in him early on, evidently. Okay, let's pray. Who would lead us tonight in prayer? And then I'll close us. Would somebody lead us? Who would do that? Joyce, okay, great. Abba Father, we just lift you up, we exalt you, we praise you for who you are. And we're so thankful to see your grace and your mercy from the beginning of Genesis to Revelation. And we praise you for that. We thank you for the privilege of being your child, of walking with you, of having your presence with us constantly, having a God who never, ever breaks his promise. He is the same yesterday. Father, as we look at our prayer list tonight, we do see the results of living after the fall. When sin and suffering and sickness and death is a part of the very created order. Lord, that's the world we live in. And you've never promised that your children won't go through 
difficulty. We've been seeing that in Genesis with the life of Joseph, all the hardship that he went through. But Lord, we do thank you tonight that you are with your children. And you do bring healing. Uh, sometimes you do it uh, without doctors and medicines. Often you use doctors and medicines. Sometimes you give the ultimate healing of calling one of your children home. But God, you are a God who heals one way or the other. And then one of these days, uh, your word promises the consummation of our salvation and the completion of the redemptive story in the Bible. And we're going to be in that place where you're making all things new. And there's not going to be sickness or suffering or disease or death. There's going to be no sin and no Satan. And God, we look forward to that day. But until then, we do pray for your people who are hurting. The names on tonight's prayer list. You know what each one needs. God, we pray that you would be with them. That your Holy Spirit would comfort them, give them strength. Give them peace. Lord, be a shepherd to each person. We do pray that you would direct their doctors, give them wisdom from above. Because, Lord, all of these folks, they're, they're your creation. You know every cell in their bodies. And so help their doctors to see what you already see, that they will be able to prescribe all the right uh, procedures and all the right medicines. God, just be a shepherd to each one of us. Help us to live each day for your glory. And Lord, remind us tonight as we think about our own lives how you are at work causing all things to work together for good. Even those things that we don't like or those things we don't understand. Lord, help us to see that all of those things factor into what you desire to do in our lives. And we thank you that your desire is indeed to conform us to the image of Christ. God, may we be found faithful. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.